Uh, we went, so for those of you who don't know, uh, I just got back from London. We took a group, uh, there was a group of 11 of us, and we went to SLU 301. Uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Uh, we were in London, um, we were in London, and we spent some time in Oxford, we spent some time in Normandy. Uh, it was a pretty amazing time, and whenever, so I have taken students on loads of trips, but I have never taken students out of the country before. Okay, so there's a little bit of anxiety, right? There's a little bit of, okay, like, I want to make sure that I'm not messing this up. And so when we uh, ordered, uh, we, we purchased, like, the flight information and everything, and I put everyone's names in, okay? Now, I've never had this issue before, but maybe it's just when you're flying internationally, they just don't play games with certain things, right? So my legal name is Michael Anthony Corgan II, okay? On my passport... My name is Michael Anthony Corgan II. When I put my name in for the ticket for the flight, my name is Mike Anthony Corgan. Apparently, that is a problem, okay? That's not going to work. Now, I didn't just do that for myself. I also did this for Gabriel Joseph Crow, who is not Gabe, okay, legally, right? So I put what I know him as. But then it really came out to be an issue. Now, Cortland, can I say, are you cool with me saying your name? Okay, all right. So I didn't know Cortland's name is not her first name. Her first name is Avery Cortland Crane, okay? Now, I did not know this. And when we go up to check our bags and everything, you would have thought I just tried to, you know, pull the wool over these people's eyes, and I'm trying to, you know, smuggle hostages out of the country, right? And what, what to me, what was so confusing is like, okay, clearly you see, like, that's my face, you know, like, like, you know, but it's it's a no go, right? And but it, but when I learned that Cortland's name, I've known Cortland for years, and I did not know that Cortland was not her first name, I was befuddled to say the least, right? I was rather confused, and 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 here's and the re and he, the the funny thing is is that I was like, man, like I feel like I don't even know you. I feel like I like my whole life's been a lie up to this point. Like like what happened? How did I how did I get this far and not know something that was so basic about who you are? And some of you are like, okay, what are you talking about? Why are you bringing this up? Because I think it's important for us to understand, like, what are we doing here? right? Because a lot of us, this is not just the way that like, okay, like that's something that's simple, but a lot of us are that way with the people in this room. You come here every week. You come here every week. You come here every Sunday, every Tuesday. And the question that I have for you is this, is how much do you know the person sitting next to you? How much, if I was to ask you to say the first name of the people in this room, could you even say half of them? And the question that, I, and the reason I ask this is because I would say that for 90% of the people in this room, the answer is no. The answer is I couldn't do it. I don't know really these people around me. And the question is, why not? What we got to talk about tonight is we got to talk about something that's very fundamental to the Christian faith. We got to understand, like, what are we doing here? What is the purpose of why we get together? Like, like I, I think it's important that we understand why we do this. Why do we gather why do we miss you when you're not here? Right? Here's the, cause here's the thing that I want you to know. Sometimes you can convince yourself that if I'm not there, people don't notice. And I want you to know, at, if no one else notices, I notice. 
when you are not here. You'd be surprised how many people notice when you're not here. Your leaders notice when you're not here. And, and the question is, why do people miss you when you're not here? Why do we go out to eat after encounter? We do this because ultimately we need to understand something, guys. We do this because we're a family. We do this because we're a family. And I believe that part of the reason that we don't cherish the church, we don't cherish the time that the church gathers together, we don't cherish Tuesday nights, we don't cherish Sunday mornings, is because we don't understand the purpose of it. We don't understand the purpose of the church. We don't understand the purpose of why we get together for encounter. We don't know why we do it. And I think that a proper understanding of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be will honestly revolutionize your relationship with others, and it will revolutionize your relationship with God. So we talk about this idea of now what, right? We kind of, a few weeks ago, we opened, we started this, we asked this question, right? Okay, camp has come and gone, right? Some of you have made these commitments to Christ, and some of you have made decisions for your future, for your walk with God. Some of you who've gone to SOU, you're like, man, like, these are decisions that I want to make. And, and you're like, okay, like, all right, I'm committed to Jesus. Here we go. The question is, all right, now what? What do we do? What does it look like to live this out? Right? Because the decision to follow Jesus is not the end of your journey. It is the beginning of your journey. And what happens is we put so much emphasis, right, on getting people to the starting line that we leave them there once they get there. Right? There's no discipleship. There's no, what does this look like? And here's the thing. I don't think that if you find yourself asking that question, I don't think it's your fault. I think it's natural to ask that question. I think what we have is we have a failure in the church to properly disciple people. What does it look like to live a life that follows Jesus? In order for us to understand what is the church, we need to know what the church is not. The church is not the place that you come to get your Bible reading for the week. The church is not the place that you come to worship for the week. And you've probably heard this a million times, but the church is the people, right? Church, it's, it's, it's the family. It's, it's like-minded believers lifting one another up and encouraging one another. The church is a group of people growing closer together as they grow closer to Christ. I firmly believe that Satan seeks to isolate Christians from their community of faithful friends. I believe that one of the main tools that Satan uses to break people down is to separate them and isolate them from Christian community. And I think he does this in a multitude of ways. Shame, regret, guilt, pride, busyness, sports, relationships, desires for personal achievement, and you could go and the list goes on. So we talk about this idea of now what? When we talk about the idea of, of what, should, uh, what should the everyday life of a Christian look like, we need to understand that, uh, that every Christian should make part of their daily routine. We need, to, that we need to make part of our daily routine that there needs to be an investment in godly friendships. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We talk about, we talk about like spending time in your word, like, like studying, reading your Bible. Then last week we talked about prayer, and this week, and I, I think it, honestly, this is one of the most important things that we often neglect is investing into personal God-centered friendships. You know what's interesting is if you're anything like me, like you're cool with the first two, right, Bible reading and prayer, because those are things I can do on my own, right? When I was in school uh, and I was given group projects, I don't know if anyone's like me, I 
could not stand group projects, okay? Especially, especially like in college, right? When you're like in college, when you don't, like if you're taking an online class and they give you a group project to do, and it's like, this is horrible, right? Like I, I don't want to do this, right? I would much rather just do it on my own. And here's the thing is that's a lot of times the attitude we have when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. I think probably my favorite passage in the Bible on this topic is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, while you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I want to kind of share a little bit. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon towards the end of his life. And if you know anything about King Solomon, he is recorded as the wisest man who has ever lived. So when you think about this, this is a man who is just immeasurably wise at the end of his life, reflecting on his life after he has made it to the end of his life. Like, man, there is some valuable nuggets of gold in there that we need to seek to understand, right? Like, when I talk about, like, SOU, you know, the past few weeks, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically a student leadership university. You get to hear from these incredible people. Right? I got to, I got, last week I got to listen to Dr. John Lennox, who is, uh, who is a world-renowned professor of mathematics at Oxford University, right? And hear him talk about just these complex issues. And it was honestly incredible to hear someone with this kind of wisdom speak on the things of God. And we're hearing, like, that's what Ecclesiastes is. I want you to hear this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 9. It says, Two are better than one, for they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we see a lot about Christian friendship and community in this passage. And what we're going to see, we're going to see really two things. We see the purpose of community, and we see the promises of community, right? First thing we're going to see is what is the purpose of community? As I said earlier, the church has incredible value to the one who understands the purpose of it. Research tells us that the regular church attender in America, a regular church attender is a person that attends church every other week. That is a regular church attender, according to statistics in America. That means they attend church twice a month. Break that out. They attend church 24 times a year. You think 24 times a year? Now, think about it. 365 days a year, they are in church 24 times. They are considered a regular attender. There's a lot of reasons that we can get into of why this is the case, but ultimately what I think is the main issue is I believe that a large reason for this is because people don't see the true purpose of Christian community. We don't understand why we do this. Let me just kind of get this out there. I want to get this out there off the bat, right? That I don't believe that the primary purpose of the church is for, is, is it, I don't think that the primary purpose of the church is your primary way of growing as a Christian. Let me say this again. I don't believe, I don't believe that the church is the primary way that you should seek to grow as a Christian. I believe that what scripture teaches is that I believe it helps I believe it's very important. But the primary way that you grow in your relationship with God is your own personal time and study in the Word and prayer. Right? I think the primary way that you grow as a Christian is what happens outside of this building, not inside of it.
So as long as you see the church, here's the thing, as long as you see the church as the primary means by which you grow in your relationship with God, then you'll find that you end up growing dissatisfied with the church because you aren't growing. You notice how, see how that works? I'm not growing, so it's the church's fault. And I will tell you that there are not great churches out there. And sometimes a church fails in its responsibility. The church is responsible for equipping the people, equipping them and giving them the platform and the ability to grow. But if we're not careful, we can easily hold the church accountable for what is our responsibility. I believe that the church plays a major role in this, right? But it can't, that's not the main thing. Because if that is the way you view church, then guess what? You're going to come in here, you're going to take a lot of really good notes, and you're going to leave. And you're not going to know anybody in here. Right? Let's just be honest. Like, if it's all about content... You can get better content online. You can get better content on YouTube. So what are we doing when we gather together that you can't do online? What are we doing when we gather together that you can't do over the phone? With this in mind, I see what, we, what we're going to see is that I think there's four reasons that we see laid out in Ecclesiastes 4 of the purpose of community. The first one is this, fulfilling the mission. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. See, it's important for us to understand that the church is a body of believers working towards the mission that God has called us to. Right? It's a group of believers working towards a common goal that God has called us to. And what is that goal? Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the mission? We are, our mission as Christians is to make disciples. Right? Our, our mission as Christians is to make disciples. And I want you to know that it is incredibly difficult to do that on your own. It's incredibly difficult to make disciples on your own. When we think about making a difference with our lives and advancing the gospel in the world, we so often think that we don't have the skills or the ability or the influence to do so, right? Well, I'm not like Pastor Mike, or I'm not like you know, Pastor Gee, or I'm not like my, my group leader. I'm not Mr. J. I'm not Miss Rebecca. I'm not Jesse, or, or I'm, not, I'm not this person. I don't have that. And here's the thing. Maybe you're right, right? Maybe you don't have those skills and, or, or whatever it may be. But here's the thing. If you look at Scripture and you look at church history, what you will see is that great things were accomplished by average people that were in God-centered community. Great things were accomplished by average people who were in God-centered community. And perhaps the problem is not that you don't have the skills. The problem is that you rely only on yourself. Paul had Barnabas, Timothy, Priscilla, and Aquila. The disciples had one another. Elisha had Elijah. Abraham had Lot. David had Jonathan. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ruth had Naomi. Mary had Martha. And we could go on and on and on. Look at the people around you. Look at the people around you. These are not simply people that you share a room with once a week. These are not people that you just share a room with once a week. These are partners in the greatest mission that you could ever be a part of. And how can we possibly say that we're seeking to glorify God by making disciples when we ignore the people to our left and to our right who are called to do it alongside us? 
So we need to ask this question. If you are intentionally, and if, sorry, if you are not intentionally investing in God-centered friendships, then are you really being obedient to the great commission that Jesus has given his church? If scripture and history show us that a major catalyst for successful ministry is a community of like-minded believers walking alongside you, and despite knowing this, you willingly do not prioritize that group of people, then can you honestly say that you are serious about making disciples? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. If you want to see God make disciples through your life, I encourage you to find people that can work towards that goal alongside you. Invest into God-centered friendships. What's the application of this, right? So each one of these, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a purpose, and then I'm going to give you a practical application for it. Practical application is this, is that a good friend is on the same mission as you. How do you know what a good friend looks like? A good friend is on the same mission as you. While we were at SOU 301, we were able to uh, go to Normandy. If you know anything about Normandy, it's a pretty significant place in, in world history. And if you study World War II, uh, June 6th, you had, you had the invasion of Normandy, often called D-Day, right, by the Allied forces to take back France from uh, Nazi-occupied, uh, by, by Germans who were uh, Nazis who had occupied and taken over France, right? So they go to do this, and we go to a place called Pointe de Hoc. Now, I, I knew a decent amount of, of D-Day stuff as I studied, but I don't, I, I, I never heard, I never really knew the significance of Pointe de Hoc, okay? And if you don't know, basically, it was an area that was in between two beaches. You have uh, Utah Beach, and then you have Omaha Beach. And Omaha Beach is like where it went down really heavy. But there was this, this point in the middle called Point de Hawk, and they had these massive guns that could shoot incredible distances. And what they would do is that they would just, they would just, just, just a barrage of, of just destruction on those two different beaches. So what the Allied forces had to do was they sent 225 U.S. Army Rangers to Point de Hawk, where they had to climb over 100-foot cliffs and take out these guns. And of these 225 rangers, only, a pro only about, I think it was close to 90 of them survived. Now, when you think of D-Day, you think of the people who are storming those beaches. Thousands and thousands and thousands of, of American soldiers and Canadian soldiers and British soldiers dying. But what you find is that they had a different, the, the people, the, the men who stormed Point de Hawk had a different assignment than the people who stormed Omaha Beach, but their objective was the same. You with me? They had a similar objective. And I want you to know that these men had different assignments, but their mission and objective was the same. And a good friend knows that their God-given assignment in life may look different than yours, but they ultimately have the same objective. You with me? That good, God-centered friendships are two people who we may not do the same thing with our lives, but we have the same common goal, and that is to make Jesus famous in the world, to glorify God with our lives. And I want to tell you guys is that the friendships that you need to invest into are those friendships. Good friends are seeking to glorify God in their own life and to help others to do the same. And I will tell you that if you're struggling to make friends, and this is a common theme that I've heard, and this is amazing, that I have talked to many of you in this room, and you talk to me about how you struggle to make friends. And this is interesting. You have a room full of people who all struggle to make friends, but they can't make friends with the people who want to make friends. How does that happen? 
I want you to know that if you're struggling to make friends, one of the greatest, one of the easiest and best ways to build friendships is to serve alongside people. Serve alongside people. The second, so the first point, all right, the first purpose is fulfilling the mission. The second purpose is encouragement. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Being a part of a mission comes with challenges. If you've ever been a part of a sports team or part of anything in life where you had a ob- common objective, it comes with natural challenges. And I want you to know, guys, that there are days when I struggle. There are days where it is hard for me. There are days where I fall and I need someone to lift me up. There are days when you will fall and you'll need someone to lift you up. And when I say lift you up, I don't simply mean that they're there when times get tough. I mean, that's part of it. But what I mean more specifically is that it's someone who calls you further in your walk with Christ. They encourage you to move forward. They encourage you to, fur- to further pursue Christ in your life. A Christian should always have people in their life that calls them further. Not people who are just content to sit on the sidelines with you, but someone who's on the field while you're on the sideline and encourages you to get off the sideline. Encourages you to keep moving. We encourage and we challenge one another to continue to, continue to pursue Jesus. And even when we fall, we pick up our brother or our sister, we dust them off, and we move forward with them. Let's give you a handful of verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Proverbs 27, 17, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Colossians 3, 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Romans 15, 1 through 2, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. Do you see? I mean, the Bible is littered with commandments that we are to encourage one another and lift one another up. If you come into this room every week, listen to me, and all you do is hang out with the same three people every week, and you could care less about the people who sit on the other side of the room, that is a problem. It's a problem. Don't tell me that you're serious about Jesus if you're not serious about other people in your life that are walking with Jesus. We talk about being like Christ. What was one of the most dominating features of Christ's life? Was his love for others. His investment in godly friendships. And here's another thing. What did Jesus get out of it? Right? Because so many times we look at a friendship as, what does this friendship provide to me? We have a very consumeristic approach to things in life. We live in a consumeristic society. But if the only way that you evaluate what a good friend is is what they provide to you, that's a problem. That's a problem. Oftentimes, whenever I see another Christian that struggles to grow in their walk with Christ, it's because they're trying to do so on their own. I also believe that the reason that Satan attacks us when, with shame when we sin is because he desires to seclude us from the community that will lift us up and remind us who we are in Christ. Think about this. Let's say you sin, you fall short. And you, feel, you feel shame, you feel regret. God forbid other people know about it. 
And you're like, man, I can't, I can't show my face around those people. I can't, I can't go. I mean, everyone knows that I did this. Everyone knows that I have this problem. Everyone, everyone's, they've heard it. They've seen it. Maybe they've heard it from other people. Like, I can't show my face there. And what is it? I'm telling you, that is Satan giving you every reason to isolate yourself. And once Satan has isolated you, he can do whatever he wants with you. He can do whatever he wants with you. Notice what Solomon says, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Too many times I have seen Christians seek to lift themselves up. Maybe you're in the room and you're guilty of this. When you fall, your main way of getting up is you, you seek to lift yourself because there's no one to lift you up. There's no one around you. See, understand this, guys, that our job, and this is important, our job as Christians is not to tell people to get up. Our job as Christians is to lift them up when they can't lift themselves up. And sometimes that means you got to be patient with people. Sometimes that means you got to show grace to people. Sometimes that means, you know what, you're not ready to get up yet, but I'll sit with you until we can get up. If your idea of being a good friend is that you tell people to get up when they need to get up, then I think you're kind of missing a little bit of the point there. See, Solomon is warning against isolating ourselves and never allow Satan to isolate you from your brothers and sisters in Christ that love you. I want you to hear this. You show me someone that is backsliding in their walk with God, and I will also show you a person that has pushed away anyone that would encourage them and hold them accountable in their walk with Christ. You show me someone who's backsliding in their faith, and I will show you someone who has pushed away everyone who would hold them accountable in it. It happens every single time. What's the application of this? What? A good friend is willing to be vulnerable and willing to speak truth. I hear a lot about accountability partners, right? Accountability. And I want everybody to pay attention. I see a lot of people laughing and joking, and I'm glad that this is hilarious for you. But, like, we talk about accountability. But I want you to, I want you to hear something is that accountability without vulnerability is an impossibility. That if you're not willing to be vulnerable with people, then don't bother saying that you have accountability partners. If someone says, I want to hold you accountable, but you're not vulnerable with them, then what are, you, what are they holding you accountable to? Accountability without vulnerability is an impossibility. And let me ask you a question. Does anyone in this room know specifically what you struggle with? Specifics. Not general. Specifics. This person knows about this sin that I committed at this point in my life and how I struggle with it. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to... Look, not everyone needs to know your business. Okay? Sometimes it's between you, the Lord, but I encourage you and at least one or two other people that you can trust. And here's another thing. Are you a trustworthy person to where someone would feel comfortable sharing that with you? Because if not, that's a problem. But this is also where we talk about speaking truth in love. When there's vulnerability in a friendship, you have a responsibility to speak truth, but you have to do it lovingly and graciously. Uh, one, one, uh, there's a, a preacher who said this one time. He says, your best friend is the person that tells you the most truth. Your best friend is the person who tells you the most truth. So we see the first purpose of community 
right, is, is the fulfillment of the mission. The second purpose is encouragement. Third purpose is comfort. Verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? See, not only do we encourage and we challenge one another, not only do we pick one another up when we fall, but we comfort one another when we need it. We comfort one another when we need it. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and, uh, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I preached on this several years ago. That we are comforted first and foremost by God. That the number one way, <coughs> excuse me, good grief, right? That we are comforted as Christians is being comforted by the God of all comfort. We need to remember this. That you cannot comfort someone more than God can. You can't be Jesus to somebody. You cannot comfort someone more than God can, and no person can comfort you like God can. No person can be God for you. Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 147, 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 119, 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, God is the God of comfort. But let's recall 2 Corinthians, what we just read. Verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction so that, that word so that is important, comforts us in our affliction so that we may what? That we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. See, God is our ultimate comforter, and he comforts us so that we will be able to comfort others. Let me tell you this, that the beauty of the church is that we get to comfort one another with the comfort that God has given us. Romans 12, 15. Here you go. This was for you, Corbin. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. See, while God is our comforter, sometimes when you're suffering, it's hard to see God from where you are. Sometimes when you're struggling, sometimes when you're suffering, you're like, look, I know I should be looking to Jesus, but it's like I just can't see Jesus right now. You with me? You ever been there? This is where the church comes in. Look, you may not be able to see Jesus right now, but you know what? Look at me while I look at Jesus. Look at me while I look at Jesus, and we'll get you to a point where you can see Jesus. Appreciate what you have in this room, guys. I would have given anything to have this when I was in high school. Looking back on it, I had one friend that was a Christian. One. One. You have a whole room of people. I would have given anything to have this when I was in high school. Appreciate what you have in this room. You have a support structure that this world could never give you. And please hear me something. If you hear something, if you are hurting, like all people hurt. All people go through things. Look, man, life's not perfect. And no one's coming up in here trying to act like it is. But if you're hurting, man, lean on the people in this room. Lean on the people in this room. Find some people that you can lay it all out there with them. You've got to have at least one person in your life that you could say anything to them. 
You gotta have at least one person in your life where you could just say, you just, right? And I want you to know that if you don't have that, honestly, I feel I feel bad for you. I feel sorry for you. Because I know that hurts to not have that. But I want you to know that in this room, I promise you, there are people in this room who can be that for you. I promise you. Allow the people in this room to be what they were created to be. What greater way to glorify God than by comforting others as he has comforted us? So the application of this point, a good friend knows how to be present. That verse in Romans 12 is powerful. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how to mourn with those who are mourning? If you read the book of Job, Job, at this point, he, he lo- loses everything, right? He's lost everything, and he's just miserable. And his friends come, and, and, and his friends are kind of strange, right? Like, at first, his friends are good, and then his friends start to go crazy, and they say weird things, right? But at the beginning, when they first get to him, he's just in shambles. And what they do, if you read Job, what they do is they sit in silence with him for days. They don't speak a word. They're just there. And I want you to understand something, guys. Never underestimate the value of silent presence. Just silently being there. And when, if, you've, if you've ever had a situation, some, a situation where someone comes to you and they're just like word vomiting on you, you know what I'm saying? They're just getting it all out there and you're like, yo, I don't know what to say right now. I want you to hear something. Honestly, what that person needs is probably just for you to be there and listen. Just listen. Be present. Oftentimes I've learned that some friends only know how to be there when you're doing something fun. And if that is the only friendships you have, those are not true, deep friendships. Those are not the kind of friendships that God is encouraging us to have in Scripture. They only know how to be present when you're having fun. They don't know how to have serious conversations. They don't know how to simply be present when you need them. Oftentimes we dismiss those that are present and we could be missing out on invaluable friendships. Sometimes when you're struggling, there are people in your life that are present and they want to be there for you, but you don't let them. And I want you to know that all you're doing is missing out on an incredible blessing that that person could be for you. Fourth application. The fourth purpose of the church is to help stand strong. Continuing on in Ecclesiastes, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. As Christians, this is a shorter point, but I think it's really important for us to understand. As Christians, we are continually under attack by the enemy. Your life is constantly spiritual warfare. There is not a day that goes by where Satan is not trying to trip you up. Scripture says that Satan is like a roaring lion roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See, while we have the church to help us when we fall, you have the people in this room that when you fall, they're there to help you and to be with you, we also have been given the church to help keep us from falling. Right? To help keep us from falling. 
Hold us accountable. Encourage us. Keep us going. Help us to stand firm. Share your struggles with others so that they can stand firm alongside you and help you from being overcome by the enemy. We're not just here so that when you fall, we're there with you. Yes, we are, but also we're there to keep you from being down in the first place. And what I have found is that the people who fall the most are the people who neglect the community the most. This doesn't mean that if you have godly friends, you're going to have this Christian perfectionism. That's not what that means. What I'll tell you is that if you're struggling in sin, investing into the friends that God has given you, I promise you will help. Application for this point, a good friend is grounded in their word. A good friend knows what verse to give you when you need it. A, 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 a good friend can't point you to Jesus if they don't know where Jesus is. You know what I'm saying? When you think about your friendships, do you have friends that intentionally point you to Jesus? Do you have friends that preach the gospel to you and remind you of the goodness of, of his grace? So we see the purpose of community. The second thing we see is the promise of community. And it's not nearly as long, so let, let not your hearts be troubled. The end of that passage says what? That a cord, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, what does he mean by this? If you look at like a rope, a three-corded rope, ultimately what it is, it's really, it's, it's three smaller ropes that are woven together into one bigger rope. He's comparing the relationship amongst God's people as a threefold cord. And, and if you've seen a rope like this, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. But ultimately, it's incredibly strong. It's incredibly strong. And it's interesting because he opens this passage with the idea that two are better than one. But then he closes it with this idea of talking about three. Where does that come from? What's the idea behind this? See, the entire theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... I was going to say something. I was going to say, like, let me just save some reading for you. No, that don't do that, okay? Let me just kind of give you a summary, a quick synopsis of the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything in this world is meaningless, and only God can provide the joy and the comfort that the heart longs for. That's, that's Ecclesiastes summed up into one sentence. Everything in this world is meaningless, and only God can provide the joy and the comfort that your heart longs for. See, the third chord is God. You see, friendships are not enough. It's not enough to just be tight with somebody. It's not enough to just be tight with somebody. It's not enough to just be friends. Even friendships where you both go to church. Even friendships where you both go to church. See, the community that God desires for us and for us and within his church is a friendship that is centered around the commonality that we have in Christ. Just because you go to church does not mean you are a Christian. And just because someone's in a church building doesn't mean that they're a God-centered friend. You see, in this room, you have something that this world cannot destroy and the enemy cannot take away. Even death cannot end the relationships in this room. You think about that. I have relatives that do not know Jesus. And God forbid they die apart from Christ, and I will never see them again. 
But you know what's amazing is that I have relationships in this room with people that I have only known for a couple years. Some of you I've only known for a few months. But if you die, I know I will see you again. And that is a friendship that can never be broken. See, this is a family that is united by the blood of Jesus, and it lasts for eternity. We're not bonded together because we have common interests. There are people that I'm actually really close with. We don't have a whole lot in common. Let's be honest. Some of you, I'm pretty tight with you, but we don't have a whole lot in common at times. But you know what? We have the thing in common. That is Jesus, and I guarantee you that that is a friendship that is stronger than any other superficial friendship. Understand something. That friends and friendships that last are friendships that are first and foremost founded on God at the center. And when two people find their hope in the redemption that Christ offers, those are two people that will walk through fire together. So like, all right, what's the application, Mike? What do I do with this, right? As I wrap up and the band comes up, you know, like what do I do with this? There's two things. One, invest in godly friendships. If you have godly friends, invest in them. I want you to know that solid friendships don't happen by accident. Invest in those friendships. The second thing is this. Be a godly friend. Be a godly friend. Be someone that people... When they think of what does it look like to have a a Christ-centered friendship, you meet those characteristics. Like, what would that look like if we had a room full of people that said, you know what, I'm going to commit to being a godly friend? What would that look like? And honestly, some of you in this room, if you're like, man, I don't even know what this is about. For some of you, you don't need to focus on having, like, a godly friendship. You need to be focused on, man, do I even have a friendship with God? You, You see what I'm saying? Because here's the thing, guys. If you're not right with God, it doesn't matter who you're right with in this world. If you're not right with God, then none of the stuff that I just said matters. Talk about being made right with God. This is something that, like, you know, I think it's important that we, that we explain this, right? That, that all of us are born sinners, right? All of us are born in need of a Savior. All of us are born because we have, uh, we have uh, sinners and we have rebelled against a holy God. And because of this, we are due the just punishment for this. But what we see in Scripture is that God has provided a way for us to be made right with Him. And it's ultimately because He gave us His Son and His Son who died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And when I trust in the sacrifice of Jesus rather than in my own righteousness, my own goodness, then you know what? I'm free to pursue God's design for my life. I'm free to be made right with Him. And because I'm now right with Him, I can be right with other people. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to close this out. As the band comes up, hopefully... And I want you guys to just think about this. I want everyone to just kind of close their eyes. Everyone close their eyes. Because I know when I talk about this idea of godly friendships, I know this hits home for a lot of people. It hit home for me. Maybe you're that person, you're like, man, I, I would give anything for a godly friend. 
Maybe you're that person who says, you know what? I have godly friends, and that's awesome. Or maybe you're that person who says, you know what? I, I need to be made right with God before I'm right with anybody else. I want you to know that that invitation is open. Don't leave tonight the same way you walked in.